any pastor would tell you that there are some unwritten rules that you follow when you're preaching for a holiday. You probably have come into some of these unwritten rules without ever them being stated. You know that on Mother's Day, the pastor throws verbal bouquets at all the mothers in the audience. That's the unwritten rule, and you do not deviate from it, with good reason, of course. You know that when it's Father's Day, you pull back those verbal bouquets and you bring out Virgil sled, uh, verbal sledgehammers to bring over the dads and say, why aren't you doing more? You should be trying much harder. I'm kind of kidding there, but sometimes it feels like that. On Christmas, you talk about the manger. You talk about the scene of Christ's birth. On the Sunday after Thanksgiving, you preach a sermon on gratitude or perhaps the, sermon, the Sunday before. And on Easter, above all things, the un written rule is that you preach about the resurrection of Christ. Well, I, I sometimes perhaps zig when others zag. I doubt you expected that when you came here this morning we would be preaching on Jesus cursing the fig tree. But here we are. But here we are. Now, let me explain myself for just a minute before you just get up and leave before I've even had a chance to get into it. We have been going through the Gospel of Mark together as a church. And, and can you testify that we have been seeing that whenever we have gotten to an important event, a important holiday, it seemed like our passage in the book of Mark just fit. It just fit perfectly. I, I didn't need to change for Christmas. I didn't need to change for Palm Sunday. And so as I reflected, am I really crazy enough to preach about Jesus cursing the fig tree on Easter? I thought about it for a little bit and I said... You know, there's an Easter message here. There's an Easter message in a passage that, as one commentator says, bristles with difficulties. Why did Jesus curse a fig tree? How does it have anything to do with what Easter is all about? Well, you'll make the ultimate determination today, whether I'm crazy like a fox or just crazy. I'll allow you to make that determination, but I hope we'll listen today. As God speaks through his word and ask ourselves, what does the cursing of the fig tree have to do with Easter Sunday and the resurrection of Christ? The title of the message this morning is simply this, the king seeks fruit. The king seeks fruit. Because we can tell the story of Jesus cursing the fig tree very simply. Jesus has just entered into Jerusalem, we studied that last week on Palm Sunday of all days. Jesus was not coming in randomly or haphazardly into Jerusalem for the Passover season. He was coming in intentionally and decisively declaring himself to be the king of God's kingdom. He intentionally chose that there would be a donkey in which he would be riding into Jerusalem. A symbol, a clear fulfillment of prophecy in the Old Testament that Israel's Messiah would enter Jerusalem, would come to to Jerusalem on a donkey. This was Jesus choosing who he would be. He was declaring himself to be the king, and there would be no turning back from this point. It would lead to his death. We saw at the end of last week's message that he went into the temple and he looked around. So Jesus already knows what's going on in the temple, 
But it was late. It was already evening. And so he went home. You know that feeling. You go downstairs at the end of the day, and the kids' playroom is a disaster. And you say, oh, it's too late. And up you go to bed. You say, I'll deal with that tomorrow. And Jesus came and looked at the temple. He knew there was work to do. He knew there was some, a task to fulfill from God. And it's as if he said, I'll do it tomorrow. And so he goes out and he leaves the city and he goes back to the village of Bethany, just a mile or two away from Jerusalem. And now he wakes up and he comes in the morning and he's coming back the same path to Jerusalem and he passes a fig tree and he sees it up ahead. Now, fig trees are all over Israel today. And they were all over Israel in Jesus' day. In fact, in Mark chapter 11, if you have your Bible open with us today, in whatever form, you see in verse 1 that Jesus came to Bethphage and Bethany, two villages just outside Jerusalem. The name Bethphage literally means a house of figs. It, that was just the idea. The whole place was just swarmed with fig trees. And so Jesus sees a fig tree as he's passing along the road. It was just alongside the road. It wasn't anyone's property. He wasn't stealing or destroying someone's tree. It was just one of the many fruit fig trees that were proliferating by the side of the road. And he sees that it has leaves and it is green. It's April. So he walks up and he says, I'm hungry. Is there, is there a fig on this fig tree? And, he, and can't you just see him kind of moving the branches around, shifting the leaves aside like you might do on a tree in your backyard? Is there any fruit there? And he turns to his disciples and he looks. There's no fruit. And so what does he do? Well, you look with me here and verse 14. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of you hereafter forever. No man is going to eat fruit from you ever again. And then a day passes. And the next morning, will you look with me in verse 20? And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Jesus curses a fig tree that doesn't have fruit, and the next morning it's already withered. It's already dead. You say, what on earth is going on here? You wouldn't be the first. Bertrand Russell was one of the most noted skeptics and atheists of the 20th century. And he relied on this passage, among others, to reject Jesus. He says, I'm not going to listen to that. He, he strikes me as someone who just flew off the handle and lost his temper and didn't get his way, if you will. That's a moral defect in the character of Jesus Christ. Is that true? Of course it's not. But we need to answer the question, what's going on here? Let's look, first of all, at what I'm going to call a peculiarity. Something very peculiar is going on here, and we need to try to understand what it is. Do you know that this is the only miracle in the entire gospel record in which Jesus destroys something? Do you know in every other miracle that Jesus ever performs, he fixes stuff. He heals people. He brings people to life. He invigorates things. He doesn't destroy them. But here, for the only time in all of the Gospels, he says, you will be destroyed. No one will eat fruit of you, tree, forever. And it dies. Just like that. 
This is extremely peculiar. But let's just try to understand again what happens. First, what is Jesus seeking here? He's looking not for leaves. He's looking for fruit. This is a wonderful picture of how human Jesus was. Don't think that Jesus came floating along the earth like some kind of mysterious ghost when he was here on earth. And he simply didn't deal with the same issues and problems that you and I deal with. Look with me in verse 12. We see, and on the morrow when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. He was hungry just like you and I were. And so he's hungry and he comes to a tree and he says, is there anything here for breakfast? Very natural. And what does Jesus just find? Well, notice again what we see here in verse 13. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Now think about this for a minute. He found nothing but leaves. Now, very soon here, did you see the weather forecast this week? Looks amazing. Very soon here, we're going to have leaves on our trees, and it's going to be green. And I want you to think of that tree in April, when the, when, when the leaves are now full, maybe late April or early May in our climate, and the tree is full of leaves. That's the picture. And Jesus comes to see if there's any fruit on it. He only finds leaves. Now, here's the really interesting thing. Will you notice what he says, what Mark tells us in verse 13? He found nothing but leaves... For the time of figs was not yet. That's the most confusing thing about this whole story. The time of figs was not yet. What's he saying? You don't expect ripe figs in April. Not even in Palestine. Not even in, in modern day Israel. You don't expect that. Just like you don't expect apples to come on your tree in May. And to be ripe and ready to harvest. In other words, Jesus came to a tree that had all the greenery of leaves, but it wasn't even harvest season yet. And because there wasn't fruit, he cursed it? Now, I need to be clear here. Commentators do tell us that with the fig tree, certain kinds of fig trees in Jesus' day and in Jesus' place, even in Israel today, there will be a very immature fig that can grow just with the leaves. So it's not so crazy that Jesus would have come and said, well, there's leaves, and in fig trees, fruit grows with leaves. I may be able to find some fruit, even unripe or immature fruit, to eat. That's at least a possibility here. But the idea here is this tree had the picture of activity, had the picture of life. It was green, it had leaves, but it did not do anything to satisfy his need. It did nothing to quench his hunger. And so what does he do? He says, no man eat fruit of you hereafter forever. This is extremely confusing. Until you read what comes next. Until you read what comes next. Remember, Jesus has already come into the temple. He already knew what he was going to see in the temple. And then he went home. And then he comes back the next morning. And he's going to go back into the temple. And this miracle of the fig tree, this destructive cursing of the fig tree, happens as he's going back to the temple, back into Jerusalem. And then, as Kelvin Todd read, he spends some time in the temple, some very dramatic time in the temple. And then they come back, and the next morning, the fig tree is dead. 
You say, what's going on here? I'm just going to tell you my premise, and then we'll see whether you can agree as we go through it. I think the cursing of the fig tree is a parable. It's a picture. Jesus didn't lose his temper and take it out on a fig tree. He didn't curse the fig tree in the way that someone who gets cut off on our Minneapolis streets might be tempted to yell out, God damn it. That's a curse. That's a curse. Jesus didn't lose his temper in that kind of way. What he was doing, he was acting out something that he was going to teach his disciples as an act of judgment against the very temple and system of religion he was about to go visit. This is a parable. It's a picture. And I just want you to notice, as we quickly go through the story of Jesus in the temple, how similar the two narratives are. Look with me here in verse number 15. And they come to Jerusalem. And Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves, a robber's. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. Now notice, first of all, just like the fig tree, what was Jesus looking for? What was Jesus seeking? He came to the temple looking for something as God's chosen Messiah, as God's chosen King. In Malachi chapter 3, we won't turn there, but you can make a note of it and go look at, at it at your own time. In Malachi 3 and verses 1 through 3, God has prophesied that his messenger would come into his temple. Do you remember that? If you've ever been to Handel's Messiah, you've heard that very memorably sung. He shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But then listen to these ominous words. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who may shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. It was prophesied from the Old Testament that the king would come. But when he came, those who were in that temple better watch out because he was coming like fire. Now again, what was Jesus looking for? He told them. He, we read this in verse 17. He said, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer. He was coming to his father's house, his place, the central place of worship in all of Judaism. Now, we just can't understand that in 21st century America like they did in 1st century Israel. We just have no place comparable to what the temple was to them. How many of you have been to the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C.? How many of you remember you've been to the National Cathedral? A few hands. We have a national church in that sense, a building. In England, they have St. Paul's Cathedral. In Paris, they have Notre Dame Paris, these 
big buildings. Not even those can possibly compare to what the temple was in Israel. It was the center of the entire nation. It was at the heart of all their religious ritual. In Passover, hundreds, perhaps hundreds of thousands of Jews from all over the world would descend onto Jerusalem, multiplying the population that was there. This was them. You could not separate the temple from the Jewish man. They were connected to it. And now Jesus comes to that temple. He is looking for a place where his father is being worshipped, is being honored, is being celebrated, and where people are being gathered in for, to a relationship with God. And what does he find? He says, you have made it a den of thieves. Now notice what he's not saying. He didn't come into a temple that was empty. He didn't come into a temple where nothing was going on and it was just broken down and it was in ruins. That wasn't what he came on. What he came on was a temple that was very busy. Hundreds, if not thousands of people crowding through the outer courtyard, the court of the Gentiles, people bringing sacrifices through, priests wandering through, talking to people here and there. It was a place of incredible activity. It had plenty of green leaves. But Jesus came looking for fruit, and he didn't find any. Now, let's just break this down for just a moment. What did Jesus mean when he said, you have made it a den of thieves? Well, go back with me, if you will, to verse 15 again. Look at chapter 11 of Mark in verse 15. Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer or permit, he would not allow that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. You say, what's going on here? Jesus goes in and he starts taking the tables where people were doing their cash transactions and he just starts flipping them over. Animals are walking through the temple, and he's in there forcefully shoving them out of the courtyard. Get out! I mean, this is dramatic stuff. Is that the Jesus that you have think about? That kind of forceful Jesus vindicating his father's name in the temple? See, what is going on here? Well, notice again, just very quickly, the tables of the money changers. Why were there money changers in God's temple? I'll tell you why. Because when you were a, a devout Jew who came to Jerusalem, you had to pay a tax. Friends, it's not just the IRS who levies taxes, okay? It was the temple priests who levied a tax. And do you know what you had to pay it in? You couldn't pay it in Greek or Roman money. You had to pay it in the Tyrian shekel. You know who didn't always have Tyrian shekels to pay? The pilgrims who came to Jerusalem. And so guess what they did? We'll give you Tyrian shekels that you can pay this temple tax. And guess who's going to add a bunch of interest on top of it? The priests. The people who are making a little bit of a spiff on the side. Jesus says, that's not what my house is for. What else happened? Not only the tables of the money changers, but the seats of them that sold doves. You say, why is anyone selling doves? Because in Jesus' day, if you were a poor person and you wanted to bring a lamb or a goat to sacrifice in the temple, but you couldn't afford one, you brought a dove 
because it was much cheaper. And that was the provision of God for those who were impoverished. It was his mercy to them. And do you know what would happen in that day? Um, scholars tell us. In that day, you had certain approved doves that were without blemish. And a poor man or woman would come to the temple and they'd bring a dove that maybe they'd gotten outside on the street or they'd brought from home. And the priest would inspect it and he'd look around and inevitably he'd find a blemish. And he'd say, sorry, can't sacrifice this one. It's blemished. But if you'll just march 20 yards down there, we have a counter where you can get a high priest approved dove. Oh, I'm sorry, you got that one for 25 cents? I'm so sorry, those ones are selling for a dollar. Oh, you need to change your money to get some Tyrian shekels. That's funny, we have the money changers right down here too. What was it? It was a business. It was a profit center. It was people making money off the place where God was intended to be worshipped as a house of prayer. And Jesus says, I will not stand for that. I will not stand for that disruption and that dishonor to my Father. And he cleared it out. Friends, just like that fig tree, Jesus walked into that temple and saw all kinds of green leaves and all kinds of appearance of life and activity. And what was the only thing he could see? There was not one bit of fruit. There was not one bit of something that would sustain his spiritual soul. Nothing that pleased God. You say, so what did he do? He cleared it out. But friends, we shouldn't just say this was a cleanse. Jesus didn't just cleanse the temple. Do you know what Jesus did on this day? He condemned the temple. He condemned the entire system of worship that was, that, was, that was being portrayed in it. Do you know the very sobering thought, friends, that that temple, when Jesus cleaned it, had only about three days to have any worth in God's redemptive plan. It was at its end. Three days. And it would never again, that temple, have any redemptive purpose to God. You say, why? Because when Jesus died, when he cried, it is finished as the perfect Passover lamb for everyone. Do you know what the gospel writers tell us? The veil on that temple rent from the top to the bottom. It tore in half. That was the veil that separated the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go once in a year from everyone else. That was the great central curtain dividing man from God. And when Jesus died that week, God ripped that veil in two because he said, this temple is no longer where my glory will live. This temple is no longer where sacrifices will atone or will picture the atonement of men's sins. My son has made one sacrifice forever and he is my high priest for you to come eternally to God. Friends, that temple and that entire system was cursed and it would be no more a place of salvation for mankind. Those are sobering, sobering words. And I ask you this morning, do you see it? Do you see that picture, that parable of what Jesus is acting out? If you don't see it, that's okay. I don't want anyone to come here 
and to look at what we do preaching at Straight Gate Church and walk out saying, well, that was clever, that was interesting, without you being able to read the Bible differently on Monday for what you heard preached on Sunday. What is our job here at Straight Gate Church? It is not to be an entertainment center. It is not to be a social club. It is not a place where we can all come and pat each other on the back and tell each other how good we are. The purpose of this fellowship, the purpose of this pulpit, the purpose of what I do in preaching is to explain the word of God to you and to myself so that you will be taught how to read it Monday through Saturday and glean these truths for yourself. So I ask you, do you see it? And let me just say this very briefly. Here's what clinches this for me. You can go to the Old Testament and you can see repeatedly that God refers to his people as a fig tree. In Micah chapter 7, I'll just give you some of these references. If you want to jot them down, you can go look at them on your own time and confirm that I'm not making anything up here. Micah chapter 7 and verse 1, God speaks through the prophet to say, I am as wind, they have gathered the summer fruit as the grape gleanings of the vintage. There is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruits. God is saying, I wanted to see fruit on the fig tree of my people, and I saw none. And now Jesus is coming, saying the same thing. You can see similarly in Hosea 9 and verse 10. You can see in Joel 1 and verse 7. Jesus is executing God's judgment on this whole system of religion that had rejected its Messiah and had dishonored its king. So here's the parable. Jesus sees a green fig tree. It has leaves. It has no fruit. It is a picture of what he has come to condemn, to judge. And it is the end result of his clearing and his condemnation on the temple. And very briefly as we close here, I want to speak finally on an Easter perspective. A peculiarity, a parable and an Easter perspective. You say, okay, well, that's all well and good, Pastor Peter, but what does this have anything to do with Easter? Here's the first thing I think that Easter proves to us about this passage. The first is that Jesus has the authority to require things from us. Jesus has the authority. Now, does, does it trouble you that Jesus came to a fig tree and caused it to wither away? I can tell you there would be many people here in our world today who would have a problem with that. My only thing that I would say to you about that is Jesus is the creator of that fig tree. He has the right to say whether that fig tree lives or dies. And in the same way, friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what we celebrate on this Easter Sunday is that Jesus has the authority to do with you and me what he desires. He has the authority to require of you and of me what he desires to see in our lives. I'm struck when Jesus went, or excuse me, when the Apostle Paul went to Athens in Acts chapter 17. He preached to these sophisticated, educated, intellectual people of his day. And do you know what he said to them? He said that God has now commanded all men, all people, everywhere to repent. And why did he say that? He said it because of this. 
because he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he has given assurance unto all men, all people, in that he has raised him from the dead. What is Easter Sunday all about? It is about the fact that God, by raising his son from the dead, has made an unmistakable command to everyone everywhere. This man is the one who will judge you one day. This is my chosen one. He has the authority to require of you what his word proclaims. And this Easter Sunday, friends, I ask you, do you know Jesus only as the one who will judge you one day? You and I will all stand before that risen Jesus. He rose again, never to die again. Or do you know him as your Savior, the one who will come to deliver you and to bring you into eternal fellowship with him? What a sobering message this Easter. Jesus has been given all authority as the eternal Son of God. Here's another one. Another Easter perspective is that Jesus rejects our human performance. Jesus rejects our human performance. Will you just think back with me to these priests in the temple? They were very busy. They had all kinds of apparent life. They were very busy in the temple. And yet when Jesus came to examine their fruit, there was none. And do you know, friends, in the exact same way, in the exact same way, you and I can so easily mistake our busyness for true godliness. We can mistake our activity, even in the church. Look at everything we're doing in here. We can mistake that activity for actual fruit, for actual life. Friends, I will say I think it is one of the greatest dangers to any of us in our conservative Christian fundamental movement. It can, has been one of the greatest dangers in our church here at Straightgate to mistake simply being active and being busy and making sure we're bustling around in church and serving and doing other things for actually the fruit that God desires of us. Friends, whenever we come to God and say, God, here's my human performance. Look at how much I'm doing for you. Look at how busy I am. We've missed the entire gospel. We've missed the entire point, which is that fruit does not come by my performance, by my effort, by my busyness and activity. Fruit can only come from the one who gives it in his resurrection life. He was the one who came to earth, not so that he could bolster our self-effort, our self-righteousness. Do, do, do. You know, friends, that is the absolute foundation of all human religion. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will get to heaven. Try a little harder and grow personally in your life. I've had the opportunity to ask many people this simple question. If you were to die tonight and stand before God, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And do you know the answer I get over and over again is this. It starts with this word, I. Because I've been a good person. Because I have tried hard. Because I go to church. Because I was baptized when I was younger. I, I, I. Friends, that's human religion. It's not the gospel. 
The gospel can never start with I. The gospel starts with this word, he. That's the gospel. He. You see, human religion says, do, and you will be blessed. And the gospel says, done, and you will be blessed. You are blessed. Do, do, do. Done. That's grace. That's nothing that you and I can contribute. Friend, on this Easter Sunday, what is the basis of your standing before God? Is it what you are doing to try to please him today? Or is the only basis for your standing of God before God what Jesus has already done? That is the difference between your eternal life with God and your eternal separation from him as a result of your sin. And there's one more thing. One more thing as we close. The resurrection shows us that it is Jesus himself who will produce in your life the fruit that he desires. I read this for those who are going up to get baptized. We looked at it in our baptism class. We understood that baptism is a picture. Baptism is a picture that as they were baptized and brought under the water, so Jesus died. He, if you will, went into the ground. He died and was buried. Scripture says that when we believe on him, we die with him. It's as if we are dying with Christ. We are crucified with him. And as that one comes up out of the water, that is a picture of us being raised to new life in him. Listen to these words from Romans chapter 6. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life, in new life. Friends, if you are in Jesus Christ today, the moment you were born again, the Holy Spirit of God entered into you. The very character and conduct of Christ moved in. And he, that same Christ is empowering you today to live the life that he intends you to live. To have victory over sin. To do what is impossible. To love your enemies. To radically forgive those who have harmed you. To give your life in service to others, no matter how sacrificial and no matter how costly. To live in release from bitterness. To defeat addiction. Jesus came not so that you would just look pretty like those green leaves fluttering on a spring day. He came so that you would bear fruit. His fruit. You didn't come to produce fruit. He came so that he would produce fruit through you by the power of his Holy Spirit. Friends, that's the Easter message. That's what Resurrection Sunday is all about. That you and I would go from here to be trees that don't just look green, that have a pretty appearance, but that are producing his own fruit in the character and conduct of Jesus Christ through all of our lives. Have I convinced you that cursing the fig tree is an Easter message? I don't know. You can tell me later.
But I will hope that as you leave here today, you'll think about that same picture for your life. Jesus coming up to you and moving the leaves and the branches aside and asking a simple question. Where's the fruit? You'll only get it in the resurrected Jesus Christ.